Hey, before I jump in the sermon, I sorry about my voice today. I'm, I'm, I like woke up missing an octave, so I'm going to try to push through. <clears throat> so if a couple of you would just pray silently during the message that it doesn't completely go out, that would be great. And if it does, we get out early. So anyway, um, two things before we jump in the message. Uh, first of all, Easter Sunday, we are having two services. We're hoping to just be packed out in here with guests and visitors and folks coming to celebrate the risen Lord. With that, though... We would like to beef up our lobby crew that day to help, especially with just folks who are new and trying to navigate our facilities and really really just want people to feel welcome. So if you are willing to serve one of the two hours on Easter Sunday, just a great way to celebrate Easter, I think, just spend the morning at church, attend service one hour, serve the other. Uh, There's some sign-ups in the lobby today. So on your way out, hit that. Uh, let them know which hour you'd like to serve and there's some varying roles that you can sign up for and we'd love to just partner with you on Resurrection Sunday if you're, if you're down for that. Second, I want to say just a quick word about the lighting in our sanctuary. So if you're new around here, if you're new to Cedar Mill, I'm new too and we're kind of in a season of transition. Uh, it, we've got, well, Pastor Carl, who was here for many years, is still here and is much loved. Uh, but he has passed the pastoral reins to me, which means that things are going downhill quickly. No, which means, which means that we're just doing some new things. We're trying some new things. And one of the things we've been trying to do is we've brought the lights down during worship a little bit. And there's been a lot of conversation about that in our church. You bring the lights down and man, holy cow, lots of talk. Um, but the elders it, thought it would be helpful if I would just say a word or two about why we're doing that. And we're trying to find just the right mix of lighting in here so you feel safe. But also, we're trying to create an atmosphere of intimacy where the focus for our worship time can really be on God. It's not about trying to create a concert. It's not about trying to highlight the band. Um, I love the band, and they are certainly up here to lead us into the worship of God. But we're trying to create an environment where you feel free to just be intimate with God and worship Him wholeheartedly. It's really just mood lighting. There's nothing theological about it. Um, And we're working on the right lighting, but... The elders, again, thought it would be helpful if I would just let you know the the logic and thinking behind it. That's it. Um, We don't need to take a vote or anything. No, you don't need to apply for it either. Um, But um, that that is what it is. So with that, I'm going to jump into the sermon before the entire message gets hijacked by the longest announcement segment in history, I think, today. Holy cow, Kathy, don't roll your eyes. Okay. Here we go. We're jumping in. I'm going to start this morning with a quote from Tim Keller. Uh, Tim wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. It's a book that we've been using to kind of jump off of and into this series that we're in called Hijacked. Here's what Tim says. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts defy them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. Keller goes on to say that when when we do this, when we take good things in our life and we make them ultimate things, they become idols. And he defines an idol as anything we seek to give us what only God can give. When we look to things, even really, really good things, in hopes that they will provide the satisfaction deep in our hearts and souls that only God can, even good things become idols. And this morning we are concluding our three-part series called Hijacked. And in this series we've looked at some powerful forces in our world that, that can hijack our lives. Forces that 
that take the wheel of our hearts away from God and begin to allure us and pull us away from Him, promising us things that they cannot uh, come through on. And this morning, the hijacking force that we're looking at as we conclude is this force called money. The temptation to look to our money as our ultimate source of joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, safety, and security. And as we jump in this morning, I I just wanted to start with some words from Jesus on this subject. And I'll warn you, before I read them, that these words are not friendly. These are not nice Nice Jesus words. This is not flannel graph, Sunday school Jesus talk. These words are not meant to leave you comfortable or complacent. Uh, They are meant by Jesus to be a sort of spiritual punch in the nose. This is Jesus um, offering a wake-up call to people who live in a world immersed in materialism. Here's what he says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Only one of these two, Jesus says, can be king, can be ruler, can be ultimate in your life. Not both. The word that the NIV translates here, money, is actually the word mamonas. It's it's a Greek word that is also uh, used to describe mammon. And and mammon was at one time, um, hundreds of years before Jesus, an actual pagan god. It was the, the Carthaginian god of prosperity and money. But in Jesus' day... Uh, this this title for this pagan idol had really just become a figurative term that was used to describe anyone who made the paradigm of wealth and prosperity the driving force of their life. That's mammon. Anyone who made the paradigm of wealth and prosperity the driving force of their life. Now, I know this seems crazy, I know this is going to be hard to relate to, um, being that we live in 21st century America, but in Jesus' day, when he lived back then in Palestine, there were actually people who spent most of their time, energy, and resources on amassing things for themselves. Can you believe that? Again, stretch yourself, try to connect. And Jesus, what he does is he steps in to this very materialistic world and he wants to be about as clear on this as he can possibly be. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate, it's the word maseo, it means to detest. Either he will detest the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise, and that word is katerfaneo, to think little or nothing. Either he will be devoted to one and think little or nothing of the other. You cannot, Jesus says, serve both God and this philosophy that wealth and prosperity will bring you joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment, safety, and security. You will look to one, or you will look to the to the other for these things but to simultaneously rely on both is according to Jesus impossible and here's and here's the tricky part we, we talk about this subject here's here's why this is such a tough subject for people to hear very few of us want to admit that it's an issue very few of us if asked 
would say, yes, Pastor Dave, Jesus, you're totally right. Wealth and prosperity is the driving force of my life. If I ask for a show of hands this morning, very few people would believe that they value money over everything else. No one would raise their hand to say, you know, the thing I find safety and security and hope and joy and fulfillment in, the thing I ultimately worship is money. That is me. You see, none of us really see ourselves as greedy people. We just don't. Keller, in his book, talks about this. He says, Some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series on the seven deadly sins. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet that the week you deal with greed, you will have your lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess just about every single sin you can imagine, and yet I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed, Keller says, hides itself from the victim. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that says, this could easily be a problem for me. This could easily be a problem for me. Friends, I hope that you believe that this morning because money is one slippery, sneaky little sucker. And he just slides right in. This is a verse from 1 Timothy chapter 6. People who want to get rich. In other words, people who, who look to the amassing of money and things instead of God in their lives fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Does anyone know what the next verse is? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The Greek word there in verse 9 for trap, it's actually Paul describes here a very particular kind of trap. This trap that he describes with that word was a noose that was used to catch birds. And the way the trap worked was that the birds would walk into this noose without ever even seeing it coming. They never even saw it happening. And the problem with this shift from relying on God and trusting in God and leaning on God and seeking fulfillment and joy and happiness in God, shifting from that to shifting to relying on money, is that most of us walk right into that noose and we never see it coming. So how? How do we prevent it? How do we see it coming? How do we keep money, mammon, this philosophy that wealth and prosperity will satisfy our souls, how do we keep that from hijacking our lives and taking us down a path that God so desperately does not want us to go down? Well, if you have a Bible this morning, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would. And it's right at the end of of the Bible. If you're looking for it, it's like you'll have this much left at the very end. Like just a slice, and Timothy's a short little book, but it's lumped in with all the other T books, Thessalonians and Titus, and so look for the T's right near the end, and uh, you'll find 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. As you turn, I'll tell you this, this, this part of the Bible, this is actually a letter, 1 Timothy's a letter that the Apostle Paul 
writes to his young protege, a guy by the name of Timothy, who has taken on some new pastor responsibilities. And what Paul's talking to him about is how to lead people into this this rich, rewarding, full, long-term joy and peace-producing life that God offers them. And he's saying to Timothy, your job is to help people keep God at the center of their lives and to prevent them from being hijacked by the forces of this world. He's giving him instruction on that. And one of the forces that Paul talks to Timothy about is the hijacking force of money. Here's what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly Life. That's one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. The life that is truly life. Like, like real living, deep living. Living that has like substance and thickness and grit to it. Uh, life that is truly life. I'm going to preach a whole sermon on that one time. Just that phrase. So good. All right. We're going to jump through a few things that can help us not get hijacked by money. First, we keep money from hijacking our lives when we remember how much we have. Fairly simple concept, and yet we so often forget. We remember how much we have. Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world. And and I want to talk just for a minute about this, because this is not an indictment. If this is you, if you fall into this category, then you do not need to feel defensive about it. To be rich in the Bible is not a bad thing. It's a challenging thing. It's a thing that comes with some extra responsibility and temptation. But a lot of God-loving characters in the scriptures were rich. Abraham, Job, Lydia, Jacob, um, just just to name a few. There's, There's plenty more. So this passage is not an allegation against rich people. It is simply God saying, if you happen to be a person who has a lot of resources... There is going to be some extra pressure on you. There's going to be some temptation, some extra temptation for you to look to your things, to your stuff, to your money instead of God. So let's get to the next question. How do we decide if we are these people? If, if, how do you decide if you're one of these people that, that Paul writes about, rich in this present world? Do you fit this category? Well, here's how most people determine the answer to that question. Subconsciously, they look around at others and then they ask themselves, do I feel rich? And it turns out, friends, that feeling rich can be quite an elusive thing because there's always someone who has more than you. Fidelity did a survey not long ago with a thousand millionaires. They took a thousand millionaires and they asked them this question. Do you feel rich? And here's what's interesting. 
The people in that survey had an average financial worth of $3.5 million. And now, if you had $3.5 million, now you can just answer with a nod up or a nod down. We're all going to answer. You don't have to say a word, but just with your head, up or down, left or right. If you had $3.5 million, do you think you would consider yourself to be rich? Go ahead and nod your head. Most of you are saying yes. Interestingly enough, over 40% of these folks said, I don't feel rich. And, and, and part, uh, just part of what's going on here, I think, is, is something real subconscious that happens deep in our minds. And, and it goes like this. I don't feel rich because I always thought that if I were rich, then I would be content. Then I would be secure. Then I would have satisfaction. But I don't feel content. I don't feel secure. I don't have the satisfaction that I've longed for. Therefore, I must not be rich. In fact, on average, the response from the people in this survey, the 30, the 3.5 million dollar folks, they said someone would be rich if they had 7.5 million dollars. Now, do you want to guess who doesn't think People with $7.5 million are rich. You want to, want to guess who think? People with $7.5 million. And, and, and psychologically, let me tell you again real quickly what, what we all do. This is, this is just kind of the result of the fall. This is just natural human tendency. We're all susceptible to this. Every single one of us define our realities by comparing ourselves with others. That is not a bad thing. That is actually a good thing. That's the way we have kind of like stabilizing ground for determining information. We define our realities by comparing with others, but here's where it gets tricky. We all, though, have to decide who's the comparison group. Who am I going to compare myself to? Psychologists call this the self-serving bias. Have you ever heard of this, the self-serving bias? Let me give you an example. When people try to determine how they are doing morally, like... What's their moral standing in the world? If they are a good or a bad person, who do you think people tend to compare themselves to? People worse than them or people better than them? Worse. Have you ever asked this question to people on the street? Try it sometime. Just take a random sample. Ten people. Ten people. Are you a good or a bad person? I promise you, every single one will say, I am a good Person, And then they will go on to cite some people in their lives, some people that they know, some things that they're doing, and then some people they know that are worse than them. And we can all find someone worse than us. Are you a good or bad person? I am a very good person. Why? Well, there's this other person I know, and she does this, 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 and this, and this. Like, yes, but she's on death row. I, I mean, I... Do this in the prison. I mean, do this anywhere. We all will find someone worse than us morally so that we can feel like we're morally in a good place. Now, on the flip side, when it comes to money, when it comes to finances and stuff, who do people tend to compare themselves with then? People who have more or people who have less? Why do I feel like it's getting dark? (laughs) I guess we didn't pay the light bill. Um, No, here we go. We're back on. People who have more, people who have less. Who do we compare with? Yeah. We find, we find someone who has more. Why? Because it allows us the benefit 
of not having to put ourselves in the rich category. We can continue to be in the not rich category. And as long as I am in the not rich category, then there's much less pressure on me to be generous. And and I can continue to use not having enough money as an excuse for all sorts of things in my life. And perhaps best of all, I can now continue to be judgmental of all those folks who are in the rich category. Those people that are not in the same camp that I'm in, right? But let's do a reality check here. And, And some of you know this. Just facts. Over one billion people in our world live on a dollar a day or less. Another, an additional two billion on about two dollars a day. If you make $24,000 a year, you are in the 90th percentile of wealth. If you as a family, have access to $80,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of wealth in our world. You are actually the much talked about 1%. Friends, did you know that in the Bible, most people struggled just to live from one day to the next? That has actually been the case for most of humanity throughout the centuries. People just living day to day to day. Fighting, struggling, working to provide for their very basic needs. It's why when Jesus talks about prayer, he says, hey, when you pray, pray this way. And he includes a line like, give us this day our daily bread. Why? Because most people in his world were just living day to day. So I might suggest to you that biblically speaking, the way Jesus defines it, to be rich is to have significantly more than what you need to make it from day to day. To be rich is to have like a lot of reserves, a big old fallback account. To be rich is to have a significant number of upgrades in your life. Anyone here have a significant number or maybe just a couple upgrades in your life? Things you do not need to survive. And the cell phone's probably debatable. Friends, I bring this up because to really break free from the hijacking power of money and grab a hold of the life that God longs for us to live, we've got to start with a little financial reality check and break the denial bubble of who Paul is talking about when he says, command those who are rich in this present world, he just might be talking to us, to you. I am fairly certain he is talking to me. Remember how much you have. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth. In this passage, Paul says, when you have money, when you're rich, when you have excess, a lot, reserves, a lot of stuff, there's going to be this temptation to look to that money to satisfy the deep needs of your heart. His exact words are, don't be arrogant. Do not think that you are valuable, significant, important, Because of the money you have. In other words, here's the principle. Remember that your wealth does not define your worth. Whatever you do, Paul says, do not believe the lie that says, 
What makes me important? What makes me valuable? What makes me significant as a human being? Is my bank account or my fancy car or my nice house or this wardrobe of designer clothes in my closet or the series of vacations I've been on? Paul says, no. Wealth and prosperity, whether you have it or not, does not define you. Your value is not connected to that whatsoever. Not even a little bit. Now, have you ever been around... I can tell you why I know this is a problem for people. Have you ever been around someone who's just got lots of money? Like, they're one of the, like, not the 3.5 million or the 7 point. They're like, I mean, have you ever been around someone who's just loaded? And you know they're loaded and everybody knows you're loaded. Have you ever noticed people's tendency to treat people with lots of money just a little bit, sometimes a lot, better than they treat everybody else? You ever notice this in our world? Why is that? Because they assume that your wealth is a measure of your worth. And since you have a lot of money, you must be more important. And thus, I should treat you in a special way. And here's where it gets personal. Do you ever notice this tendency in you? Do you ever feel tempted or pulled in that way to treat people who are extremely gifted or wealthy or have positions of power in a significant way? It's because their value is tied to something other than the fact that they are a human being created in the image of God. And Paul in this passage says, no, no church, that is untrue. Do not believe that lie about yourself or anybody else. He goes on to say, do not put your hope in wealth. He says, don't be arrogant. He says, and also don't put your hope in wealth. What is hope? Well, hope, friends, hope is about the future. Hope says, I feel safe. I feel secure. I feel like the future is going to be okay. Everything down the road is fine. I'm looking ahead and thinking things are going to be, going to be good. Why? Because of something that I have put my hope in. And Paul says, do not fall into the trap of ultimately feeling safe, secure, thinking that the future is going to be okay because you've got money stashed away in a 401k. Like a Dr. Seuss part of the sermon there. He caught it. Now, quick clarifying, thanks Matt for the courtesy laugh. Um, quick clarifying point here. I want to take a quick tangent and be real clear about something. The Bible teaches very quickly, or clearly, the, the wisdom of saving money and planning ahead financially. The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs chapter 6. This is one of my favorite verses in scripture. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. They save for a rainy day. They prepare for for lean times and times when they're going to need some extra. Friends, this is not an anti-saving message. The Bible is very pro-saving. What Paul is saying here is actually exactly what Keller says. We must be careful not to let our savings, not to let our money, not to let the stuff that we have be the thing that we're ultimately hoping in. I feel so safe and secure as I look to the future. Why? Oh, because I have God in my life. But the reality is, the truth is, it's because I've got a lot of stuff or I've got a, a savings account that's, that's packed full and that's what's really making me secure. Do not put your hope in wealth. This is point three. Remember that your money is not the source of your security. 
Remember that your money is not the ultimate source of your security. Let me ask you this. If all your savings were wiped out today, if tragedy happened and suddenly you lost all your money, would you still have hope? Would you still have ultimate security? Would you still feel safe and protected moving into the future? Because God is your God. I'm not saying you'd be happy about it. I'm not saying we should try this as an experiment even. I'm just saying, where is your ultimate, where, where does your ultimate security lie? Keller says this, an idol is something we cannot live without. It is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Remember that your wealth does not define your worth. Remember that your money is not the source of your security. Why? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. That word uncertain, Paul uses there real specifically. And what he's saying is, the reason it's silly to, to associate your value, your importance, your significance as a human being, or, or your security and safety as you look to the future, the reason it's silly to attach those things to money is because money and stuff and things are so shaky. They are not stable. They are not reliable. They will not last. Jesus talks about this very thing. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And there's so much good stuff in that passage, and we'll come back to that another time. But here's the point. I remember walking through a town on the Gulf Coast shortly after, after Hurricane Katrina. Like, like some of you, um, we went down to do some rebuilding efforts, and to see the sheer volume of destruction and devastation... Um, for some of these, these beach towns, it was unbelievable. Miles and miles, blocks and blocks of, of beautiful fancy homes and, and wonderfully luxurious cars and hotels and businesses and resorts completely and utterly destroyed. And I thought, how many people's security and hopes and dreams and value and, and importance were tied up in this stuff that's now just gone. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where mold and salt water destroy and where overflowing oceans break in and steal. I just, such a lesson in that. Friends, again, Paul tells us that we can keep money from high, I'm now starting to lose my voice and I sound like a middle schooler. I can keep money from hijacking our lives when we remember that money is uncertain. It's just not worth it. It's just not reliable. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Who richly provides us with everything. Who? God. Perhaps more than any other principle we will talk about today, I believe this one has the power to radically alter your attitude, perspectives, feelings, approach to the money and stuff that you have. And it is not complicated, but it can change your world. It's so simple and yet such a powerful, powerful truth. Uh, some time ago, I actually found a story about this very thing in a, uh, a wonderful theological journal that I read called uh, Reader's Digest. Here, here's what the story says. A woman was in an airport waiting 
to get on a plane, and she was quite hungry. So she went over to a countertop and bought a little snack bag of Oreo cookies, her favorite. She was in the gate waiting area, and she went and sat down, and there was a man um, that she didn't know sitting next to her, and on, on the armrest between them was this little snack bag of Oreo cookies. Well, without saying a word or even making eye contact, the guy reached out, took a cookie, and started to eat it. The woman, who was a little perturbed, uh, reached into the bag herself, took out a cookie, and, and started to eat one as well. Well, the guy just smiled at her and sort of nodded. Then he reached in and took another cookie. Now, at this point, internally, the woman is livid. She is furious. She is fuming. But externally, because she's in an airport, she's trying to maintain her composure. So calmly, she reached in and took another cookie. They both kept doing this back and forth until finally there was only one cookie left. And the man reached in, took the last cookie, broke it in half, and offered half to her. She refused, and so he ate the entire thing himself. The woman at this point was beside herself. Her mind was racing with all the things she'd like to say to this guy to tell him off, but because, again, they were in public, she tried very hard to maintain her composure. Well, finally they called, like, her seat row, and fuming, she got on the plane. She unloaded her her goods, got settled into her seat, sat down, opened her bag, and to her horror discovered that her bag of Oreo cookies was still in her purse. Awkward. Not only did the man not eat her cookies, she was eating his cookies the entire time and she didn't even know it. Now here's the question. If she had known from the beginning that those cookies were not hers, would that understanding have changed her actions and attitudes and thoughts and feelings, her entire approach to those cookies? Absolutely. Friends, most of us in this room... I've got a lot of cookies. And another significant way that we can keep money from hijacking our lives is when we simply remember this core principle. Our money is not ours. Our stuff is not ours. It is God's and all of it. Every single dime, every single nickel, every single cent came from Him. Our money is not ours, it's God's. How radically would that change your approach and your heart towards your stuff? How radically would that keep God as the focus and keep money well away from the steering wheel of your life? If you could just remember that it's all God's. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The final point, friends, of this message is not actually just one of the points. The final point that... I believe Paul makes right in the core of of these verses is actually the central point for this entire series. It might be one of the central points for our entire lives. And it's just a few short words. Put their hope in God. If you want to keep money off of the throne of your life, you want to keep money from hijacking your world, put 
Don't start to hate money. Don't loathe money. Don't get focused on what you are and aren't going to do with money. Actually get focused on what you are and aren't going to do with God. Here's the question. Have you put your hope in God? See, the Bible says it is for freedom that we have been set free. That we've been freed by God. We've been freed from the power of sin and death so that we can continue to have freedom. The Bible says, don't go back. Don't take your freedom, this, this freedom gift that God gives you, not because of anything you've done or, or earned in any way. Take this freedom gift. Don't take the freedom gift and then go like enslave yourself to something like money. And friends, we enslave ourselves to money when we use our money to meet the deep needs of our heart that only God can meet. But here's the trick. When we look to God for approval instead of money, when we look to God for acceptance and significance and security and importance and value and success and safety and joy, do you know what it does for our money? It frees it. Your money is now free. It is no longer tied. You you no longer have this compelling need to use your money to attain these things because you've already gotten them 100% completely from the Lord. There's so much freedom in the gospel, friends. God says, you're valuable because I say you're valuable. You're significant because you were created in my image. You are safe and secure because I, the creator of the universe, love you. You are righteous. Not because of what you do with your money, but because my son died on the cross and rose from the grave. You see, there is so much freedom in that. And now I can just do the things with my money that would bring glory and praise to God because they're not tied to these other things. I can do things like be generous. I can share I can do good things for other people. I can even, what's it say in the passage? Enjoy the money that God has given me because my money is now freed up for me to do the things that God wants me to do instead of being tied to these deeper issues. Friends, that's the truth that we will declare this morning in this meal. We will come to the table and we will remind ourselves, Lord, I am righteous and accepted and forgiven and valuable and safe and my future is secure not because of what I've done or will do or did at one time with any money but because of who you are and what you've done for me. So the worship team's going to come. We're going to worship and I want to ask you to do this. Think about the deep needs of your heart and soul that you have that you try to use money to satisfy. A way to answer this question might be, think about where you're tempted to spend money and why. Think about if you had a thousand extra dollars today, if the ushers handed out thousand dollar checks, they're not going to, but if they did on the way out, where would you be tempted to spend that money and why? And then say, am I trying to meet a deep heart, soul need in my life through money? And do I need to declare today at the table, Lord, money will never satisfy it. I look to you and only you. Come to the table, take the bread and the juice, and then go back, and when you're ready, receive it on your own. And let me just say this as one final word of instruction. If when you get to the table, another person in line takes the cracker that you wanted, (laughs) just smile and nod, because they're not your crackers anyway, all right? 
I'm going to pray. We're going to worship and then come forward to the tables. Father, thank you for... Thank you for being Lord. Thank you for meeting those, those deep desires of our, of our hearts and souls so that we are free to live. Not trying to satisfy those things in, in ways that will ultimately fall short, like through the, through the attaining of money or the spending of money. Lord, free us as people to be your people in every way, including in our financial lives. And most of all, Lord, get the glory and praise and honor for the lives of freedom that we live in you. Not because we have to earn anything from you, but because we are free in you. And we just desire to experience this life that you offer, this life that is truly life. Meet us at the table today, Father. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.